We are in chapter 21 of the Confession of Faith, finishing up the first paragraph. We've seen the need for worship, the reality of, of that in even the revelation of the light of nature in, in this entire world, that all men are religious by nature, and that the light of nature shows us the divine nature and the power of the, the one true God, the creator of all things, upon whom we all depend. And so let's read this first paragraph, and we'll then continue looking at the acceptable way of worshiping God and how that is it flows out of the truth that he alone is most high. He alone uh, can speak to us and give us our purpose and our direction. And certainly he alone is allowed to uh, define what is pleasing to him and what will allow us to be accepted in his sight and to bring our worship and praise to him. He's not left that uh, to, to our imaginations or creativity. And we, we see... Um, as we saw last week, that God's word is the guide for all of life. And there's this, what the reformers refer to as the regulative principle of worship, that God regulates his worship. Um, again, this, this comes back to the matter of the freedom of the conscience before the Lord Jesus, uh, that no man can come and determine or, or define or impose upon you uh, steps you must go through or actions you must take or words you must say in order to be pleasing in God's sight and offer him worship. Uh, that is where the tyranny of man uh, is found. And so we recognize what the scriptures teach, as we saw last week, that God alone has given us that direction. He has defined how we may approach him, how we may please him, and it doesn't take long to just pause and reflect on history, uh, some of the worst atrocities in, in history have been done in the name of the worship of God, um, either false religions or even within the Christian faith. When the church has strayed from this principle and said, um, as an act of worship, this is what you must do, uh, it, it goes to the path of destruction very quickly. And so let's read this first paragraph and pick up on these scripture references where we left off. The light of nature showeth that there is a God who hath lordship and sovereignty over all, is good and doeth good unto all, and is therefore to be feared, loved, praised, called upon, trusted in, and served with all the heart and with all the soul and with all the might. But the acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself and so limited to his own revealed will that he may not be worshipped according to the imaginations and devices of men or the suggestions of Satan under any visible representations or any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scripture. And so again, we see this second half of the paragraph dealing now with how, how do we know what is acceptable in God's sight? You remember the Lord Jesus in his teaching, um, he, he said that these Jewish people who had rejected him, that there would even come a day when, when they would kill and afflict the disciples of Jesus and think they were offering service to God, if you remember that, that reference in the teaching of Jesus. 
this is where the imaginations of the heart of men are so easily confused and distorted and led away from what God has actually said that when men dictate and are allowed to impose, now this is what we're going to do that pleases God as a service of worship to Him, uh, it can even involve attacking and killing the people of God under the conviction this is what God wants us to do. That's the danger, and that's why God has bounded this matter of what pleases God. How can we worship Him? How can we approach Him so closely and carefully? It's, it's to keep the way clear and open so that all who call upon the Lord uh, may come before Him, uh, and they, they do not have to go through any other uh, besides the mediator that Christ has been provided to be. And so we were looking uh, last week at these references, the very end of the first paragraph, and we got through Matthew chapter 4, and we were going to look this morning, beginning in Deuteronomy chapter 4, at this matter of idolatry. Now, often when we think of idolatry, we think of the worship of false gods, but actually in Scripture, what we see, as, and that, that can be true, but we also see, and perhaps predominantly see, this concept and teaching about idolatry, the prohibition of worshiping an idol, is often dealt with in the context of how we're going to worship the true God. Are we going to worship Him uh, according to something that we have fashioned, a concept of Him, or a representation of Him, where we as creatures are, are defining or dictating uh, the, the channel of our worship? Or are we going to recognize that we cannot um, fashion the, with the art of man uh, anything that's acceptable to represent God? It's an insufficient representation. It is an inaccurate representation, uh, even just the very nature of it. That as a created thing, it cannot represent the creator of all things. Uh, just in its, in its character. And so we see the Lord giving these instructions in Deuteronomy 4, verse 15. Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully, since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire. Beware lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourselves in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish that is in the water under the earth. And beware, lest you raise your eyes to heaven. And when you see the sun and the moon and the stars, all the hosts of heaven, you be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them, things that the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven. But the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, to be a people of his own inheritance, as you are this day. Furthermore, the Lord was angry with me because of you. He swore that I should not cross the Jordan and that I should not enter the good land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. For I must die in this land, I must not go over the Jordan, but you shall go over and take possession of that good land. Take care lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God which he made with you and make a carved image, the form of anything that the Lord your God has forbidden you 
For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. So again, we see how it tends. If you fashion some image and say, now this is how we're going to worship the true God, you end up worshiping that thing and the figment of your imagination rather than the one true God. But that's how it's often introduced. Uh, Look there in verse 15. You didn't see a form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire. And that's something that is in man's sinful nature and his fallen state, that he desires this representation. He desires something um, without maybe realizing it, something that can be controlled, something made in the image of man. But notice there, take care lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you, and make a carved image. And then in verse 24, for the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Now this is something that is referred to in the New Testament. We looked at these verses uh, just a couple months ago. But over in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 28 and 29 we read, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. So that's the reference back to Deuteronomy 4 here. Again, dealing with this matter of worship. How are we to worship God? Are we to recognize Him and listen to Him and and worship through His Son in the ways that He has said? Or if we neglect that, then we become guilty of this very matter of idolatry, of introducing our own thoughts and and our own art in the worship of God. Now let's look also at Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. Now this is interesting, um, especially in this in this context. Why why are these emphases on Worshiping God as He has revealed Himself, He has not given us images and icons through which to worship, but He's given us His Word without the representation of a form that we could see. Even when He appeared to Israel there on the mountain, it was veiled in fire. You, you, there was nothing that you could, um, nothing tangible that you could lay your hands upon. Well, here in Ex- in Exodus twenty. We have the Ten Commandments. And in verse 2, we have the first commandment. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the house of slavery, uh, out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. That's the preamble. Then in verse 3, the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. Verse 4, we understand, is the second commandment. You shall not make for yourself a carved image. Again, distinguishing between worshiping a false god and worshiping even in our minds uh, an effort to worship the true god but introducing our own art and and creation into the worship of god now the the roman catholic church combines verses three and four into one commandment they actually don't have the same ten commandments that we do if you didn't realize that And they do that deliberately, trying to connect this matter of a carved image and and introducing your own art into the worship of God as only only explaining 
uh, that in the context of having another God besides the Lord, the first commandment. But that's not uh, how we understand God's word. It is true that we shouldn't worship other gods. Certainly true we shouldn't make an idol of another god. But the second commandment, as we read it there in verse 4 and following, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or a likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth, you shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Now, it's easy to read that and miss some of the connections there, but if you notice, the whole point there in verses 4 through 6 is, about how we worship. We're not to make carved images. Now, what, what is the warning and the explanation attached to that commandment? Well, the warning in verse 5 is, you shouldn't bow down to these and worship these because I am the Lord your God. I'm a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. Now, notice, of those who hate me. This is uh, connected to the matter of making your own representation, your own idea of who God is and what he is like, what his characteristics are. What this connection shows us is that even, even if our intentions were in the right place, if we are rejecting God's revelation of himself as insufficient, he hasn't given us that object to worship by. If we reject what he has given us in his verbal revelation of himself, if we reject that as insufficient for his worship, this is an expression and leads to uh, hating God, uh, rejecting him himself as who he is and, and substituting and preferring our own concept of what God is like. And so again, even if it's done in the name of worshiping the true God, and all the motives are, are all that you would wish them to be. This is the, the inescapable conclusion of, of creating your own idea of what God is and who he is and what he is like, reducing God to the work of your hands as a representation of who he is. Uh, it, it's a rejection of his representation of himself in the living and written word of God. Only Jesus Christ reveals the Father to this world, and he does so when not present physically. He does so by his word and spirit. And so it's, it's sobering for us to realize that in, in history that vast segments of the professing church have fallen into this very matter. The Eastern Church with iconography, uh, the, the whole liturgy of icons and the significance of that in the Byzantine Empire and the Greek Orthodox Church, the Russian Orthodox Church, the Eastern Church, um, and then also through saints and images and art in the Roman Catholic Church and the Western Church. Uh, this very issue has been the stumbling block in the worship of God's people and it's had tremendous practical implications. Again, what we saw last week about how our 
all of life is flowing out of our worship of God. Well, if you pollute the source, if you corrupt the worship of God, then you lose something in all of the rest of life. Your concept of God is being altered and not for the better. As you worship Him according to your own concepts, you are losing and displacing the true the truth of who God is, and you're losing that in your relationship with Him in all of life. And so, um, I actually, there, there's a paper I can point you to if, if you're interested later in, uh, in showing some of the implications of the worship of icons in the Eastern, in the Eastern Church and how that impacted uh, life and culture and, and the people of God. So it's an, interesting, it's an interesting thing to look at. But needless to say, God in His Word has, has given us what He says is sufficient. Again, He hasn't provided these things for us. We're creating them according to our own concept, and we are in the act of that saying, well, God, your, your representation of yourself in your Word is insufficient, and we prefer this. So it, it does lead to idolatry. Setting up your own concept of God is the act of setting up your own God, a God made after your own image and not the true God. Let's look at Colossians chapter 2 in this matter of worship again. Um, what is acceptable worship? What is spirit-filled worship? Well, the scriptures teach us here again that God directed worship, that he has said, this is how you may, may call upon me, this is what you're to do, this is how you may approach me through Jesus Christ. These are all things that he has provided and that he blesses with the filling of his spirit to make them full of power and, and effectiveness. If we depart from that and come up with our own ideas, now this is what we are going to do, this is how we'll... Um, approach God, this is how we'll please God, whether it's in worship or in life, uh, we lose that. We, that's not filled with the Spirit and made powerful and effective. We see that here in Colossians 2, in verse 20. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh." So this isn't a new problem. Here in the New Testament, uh, th there were those who um, they were seeking to carry forward their own ideas um, of, of what Old Testament religious life looked like. And here Paul is saying, now that Christ has come, he has fulfilled these things. Uh, they've served his purpose. And so why were you doing them? Were you doing them because God had appointed them for you, pointing you in them to his son who was coming? Or perhaps were you just doing them because 
uh, of some other reason, uh, some other self-imposed reason that you just had always done this or it made you comfortable to do this or you just really thought this was the thing to do. Um, this was the issue because now Christ had come and these matters of Old Testament dietary laws and, and festivals and so forth, they were fulfilled in Christ and should be observed in Him in believing in Him and recognizing their fulfillment in Him. And so in verse 20, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, that is, you, you've, you've left behind and died to old, worldly, fleshly ways of thinking and living, uh, that you, you used to be governed. The only authority you recognized was just the spirits of the world, what men thought, what you thought, what other men thought. But now, if you're in Christ, you've died to those things. You, you now are governed by a different spirit and a different will, a different direction. So why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. So this is the issue human precepts and teachings. Men coming and saying, oh, this is what we've determined. Uh, this is how we must live our lives if we're to be free from sin. Uh, we need to avoid uh, eating this. We need to avoid drinking this. We need to avoid touching this. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity of the body. In other words, they could even make a logical case for, okay, well, I I can see there's certainly maybe a connection between uh, this life of sin I see over here and some of the things that they are participating in. It has the appearance of wisdom, but as self-made religion, it has no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Will that stop you from having that life of sin? These outward things, these outward requirements. Uh, the human precepts and teachings, what men have come up with is, now this is how you can avoid that life of sin. No, you need to look to Christ. He can tell you and will. He doesn't want you to have that life of sin. Submit to His will and, and follow His word, and that's the path that you will walk by the power of His Spirit and avoid these temptations. But just coming up with a bunch of extra rules that men came up with, that isn't where the power against sin is. Self-made religion has no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Okay, so that, that concludes the scripture references on this first paragraph. Now, the second paragraph focuses, and, and just very plainly, it's basic stuff here, but it defines for us who is the right recipient of religious worship. Now, that might seem obvious, but sadly, this, this paragraph, even in 1640s, was written in a context in which it was not universally recognized in the Christian church. And so I'll just read it, and then we'll look at these scripture references. Religious worship is to be given to God, the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, and to Him alone, not to angels, saints, or any other creature, and since the fall, not without a mediator, nor in the mediation of any other, but of Christ alone. And so there's three basic statements here. First, that religious worship belongs to God alone. 
Uh, second, the negative, not the angel saints or any other creatures, which that had been practiced. And then third, since the fall not without a mediator, which is further clarified, nor in the mediation of any other but of Christ alone. Now, why would that be necessary? Well, again, the Roman Catholic Church, to take an example, had supplied that there were lesser mediators. They may not have quite the access that Christ did in heaven, but just below him, perhaps, if below him in some writings, uh, Mary that basically she was a mediator that could get you to Christ on like a fast.
Lord, we pray that you would deliver us. Uh, perhaps we don't have the, the outward uh, display of, of worship through art, but we might easily break that commandment in our hearts just by fashioning our own concept of who you are and what you are like. Lord, we pray that you would deliver us from idolatry in the heart, that you would help us to uh, look to you and to look to your word and to be instructed and, and continually blessed with a greater and a deeper understanding and, and vision of your glory as you are. And we would not be uh, tied to uh, the limited concepts that, that we often cherish in our hearts. Lord, we pray that you would um, overcome our hearts with love for you and devotion to you, that we would worship you, Lord, as as the one who has loved us so well and been so good to us. Lord, we ask that you would stir our hearts to sing your praise, that you would comfort us, Lord, in the sorrows of this life. We thank you that there is uh, joy in the morning, and we look forward to that day, Father. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.